Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast in the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 7th of September 2020 and we have returned from our summer break. This is episode 174 and on today's podcast I talk to Professor Mark Connolly, Professor of Modern British History at the University of Kent and also his colleague Dr Stephen Grabel, Reader and Director of the Centre of History of War, Media and Society, also at University of Kent, about their recent book on Epes. This is published by Oxford University Press. I spoke to Mark and Stefan over the interweb from their homes in Kent. Hi, Stefan and Mark. Welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourselves and how you each became interested in the Great War? Well, thank you very much for, for having us uh, on the programme, Tom. Um, well, looking back, I'm actually quite surprised I got interested in the First World War uh, as a student at all. Um, we never discussed the First World War at school, uh, merely as a prelude to the Weimar Republic. First of all, didn't really take a, uh, didn't really have a big role in our family memory either. And in fact, when when uh, I started my PhD, my, my parents were somewhat consternated uh, because they believed I should focus on a on on a real event uh, uh, such as the Second World War. And it was only with really with arriving in the UK as a as a university student, uh, so there were courses on the First World War that. Armistice Day had just been rejuvenated uh, in in the 1990s as uh, a ritual. Uh, And when I discovered that the First World War was referred to as the Great War, initially thought it was the Second World War, then then I became interested in in, uh, the First World War and was primarily through its monumental legacy, the the memorials um, that started to uh, fascinate me. Uh, This combination of uh, artistic expression and uh, uh, private grief. Uh, and that's how I got drawn into uh, the study of the First World War. And uh, so initially the focus was very much on the home front and home front memorials. And uh, and through this route, I've become interested in, in battlefronts and, and also the monumental legacy that have shaped uh, the battlefronts. And I presume it's not that different maybe from Marx's uh, um, trajectory from studying war memorials in London to Great Great War battlefield monuments at Ypres. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, you know, for me, I, I always was interested in history, and it was a very, very um, sort of traditional boyish thing, particularly growing up in Britain in the 1970s, where the two world wars were all around us but particularly more the second world war but what really i think got me going on the first world war walking so regularly past my local war memorial you know just going on shopping expeditions with my mum and such like and being amazed at what i later found out were called putties there was this statue there and what men actually wore these things tied round their legs, did they? And I sort of some, I think, vague concept that they would normally be standing around when they were somewhere a bit wet. And I just, they just possessed me. Why on earth would you have these things? So that was that was always in my mind. And then when I was 13, uh, one of the things I got for my 13th uh, birthday present, which really did set me on the course, um, and I think it's probably true for a lot of people, um, I was given a copy of Martin Middlebrook's First Day on the Somme. And I 
read that book and just found it absolutely amazing. And then in 1986, that anniversary year of the song, I'd just done my O-levels and as a little treat, my parents said, well, why don't you go on one of Martin's trips? Because we'd found out that he ran these battlefield tours. And I, I can still sort of remember it, stepping out the first cemetery I ever saw was Dud Corner Cemetery at Lewes. And then just being amazed. And, and then I had this total kind of uh, bringing together of the tracks of this military history thing and the way the war was commemorated. It suddenly hit me standing there in those cemeteries. And yeah, sort of led me on the path of to, to start thinking about commemoration. And then as Stefan said, really in, in the earliest days of my serious study, it was about commemoration on the home front and gradually it's kind of gone back to the battlefront. So when we actually talk about Eeps, what exactly do we mean? Well, I, I think we were really interested in the way one particular site just collected so many um, physical uh, memorials, you know, and um, and the length of its afterlife as well. This wasn't as if it was a place that you know petered out in terms of significance um, uh, and had bounced back, shall we say, after the Second World War to become such an important part of the of Belgium's um, regional economy, and also the the way in which it was a a, a legend which went across the competent nations, particularly for, for Britain and Germany, but Belgium and France you know, also had a stake in it. So to find, I think, a battlefield where all of the competent nations of the Western Front actually felt they had a stake in this place just made it fascinating. Yes, uh, there's been a tendency in, in, in the research in the First World War to emphasise the global we are now all encouraged to think about the First World War as a global war, and that's entirely appropriate. Um, but we wanted to show that the First World War was a global war and a local war, and 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 Ibis is global and local place. It's the place where people from five continents uh, converged on um, a very specific place on the map between 1914 and 1918, where various nations have mapped their memories um, onto the city and uh, the salient sins. And this turned um, uh, the city of Eve and its environs into a, what we would call a transnational site uh, of experience and, and memory. Um, and connected to that is that our book doesn't start in 1914 and it doesn't end in 19. 18, uh, we show that the, the making of, of Eve as an international icon started long before the First World War, um, and that this, the, the battle for Eve continued well after 1918 uh, in terms of symbolism, of symbolically claiming uh, the landscape. And as Mark said, tourism played an important role in these, these uh, commemorative practices of the interwar. And um, and we often experience the First World War as tourists, and our readers will probably find themselves, recognize themselves in, in our book. They are part of the story that we, we tell, how tourists are so very important in uh, making sense of um, this space uh, and, and commemorative site uh, ever since 1918. In fact, 
Dino Futurism started a bit earlier, didn't it, Mark? Yeah, indeed, yes. Yeah. Now, you're, we're going to talk about your book on Yeeps today, which is described as a transnational interpretation of the meaning of Yeeps. Could you tell us about what your book is about and why you both decided to write it? Oh, well, that, that was one of our first um, fun intellectual and kind of emotional games about this as well, uh, as, as realising that it's such a, a flexible geographical term um, which is often uh, we, we realize driven by um, national uh, standpoint and you know obviously we, we realize straight away that there is a slightly different thing as far as the British Empire is concerned between Eep and the Eep salient they are ever so slightly different Eep um, as, as a region really is the bit that stretches from about Bozinger in the north down to, to the French border down to Plug Street, um, whereas the salient is kind of the, the bit Messine Rich Scarter going all the way round to about Hogger Hooge um, and, and then hinging uh, at Bozinger again. For the French and the Belgians, um, it's somewhere that also includes the Isère, the Iser Front. Um, it runs as far as Dixmurder, really. And for the Germans, there is that incredibly redolent phrase, isn't there? So, of Flandern um, and everything that Flanders, again, a sort of slightly broader sense of, of Ypres sitting in uh, as, as the kind of focal point within a larger landscape of Flanders. I suppose the elasticity of the geographical place names has contributed to uh, the fascination of the place, but also a lot of confusion. Um, so similar to the British distinction between Ypres and the salient, in, in the German case, you have Langemark and you have Flandern. Now, Langemark is, of course, a village just outside Ypres. But in the discourse of uh, wartime and post-war, it could also mean the entire salient, um, the entire E battlefield. And moreover, it could also mean the entire Western Front. Uh, Langemark wasn't just a place name, it was also an idea. Now, Flanders, uh, Flandern, tended to refer to the whole sector from the Franco-Belgian border to the sea, um, but often applying a, a running line uh, from the salient itself northwards to the sea. So the, the German understanding of, of London is slightly different from the British notion of Flanders and, and Ypres. But then in some context, London referred more specifically to the battles of 1970. So there's a, a lot of confusion. And this is part of the story, the elasticity of these place names that we try to chart in, in our book. But they can refer to particular battles, particular dates, to particular places. But sometimes they can also describe an entire region that is uh, very vaguely defined uh, by geographical features. So could you tell me about what Eeps was like before the Great War? Yeah, and you know, as Stefan was saying earlier, I think what's really important about the way Eeps is going to come to be uh, perceived in wartime propaganda of all of the combatants and then the effect that will have on the post-war uh, remembrance of the place is that it is drawing upon this deeper knowledge and it's it's sort of clear from the development of the shall we say the western european industrialized world holiday pattern that's starting to emerge from the 1860s 1870s that with railways with, with um uh, steamship travel for the british across the, the the channel and the growth of the tourist guidebook 
Ypres very quickly starts to appear as a distinct Flemish city, you know, with um, a distinctive history, which ties it in. Certainly in the English language, it was tied in to a history of, of Britain, but more particularly of East Anglia through things like the wall trade and everything else. Um, there was that great kind of ang genuinely Anglo-Saxon sense that there is a shared Gothic uh, culture to be celebrated here. So to see in both British and uh, German, uh, English and German language guidebooks, a celebration of Ypres as a great historical site full of these amazing buildings. And in particular, you know, as they're always keen to stress, Europe's largest secular Gothic building in the Cloth Hall sits here. Here is somewhere where you as the educated tourist, you know, really should take in and should think of in ways similar to the, the way you consider Bruges, you know, so it starts to become this tourist site. But what's really quite uncanny is because there is a there is this knowledge of how vibrant Ypres had been in the medieval economy by the late 19th century, it's already being spoken about as this kind of spectral ghost town that it's a shadow of what it once was. So as with so much of the First World War, you know, part of the cultural fascination is that there that it, it, it's already there is a kind of foretelling an unwitting foretelling of what's going to happen here because it is remarkable how often it is referred to as a city of ghosts there is one description that says the cloth hall could swallow an army of men and you know, it's spooky reading that written in 1995 whatever it is so it is this place with, with a um uh, a sort of distinctive profile and of course as any Londoner interested in their architecture would have known the great Gilbert Scott was interested in the cloth hall, um, which explains the, particularly the roof of um, St Pancras Hotel. Um, you know, so it's there, um, the, the, the Midland Hotel. So, yeah, it's this place that's intertwined in, in European culture, certainly Western European culture. So, Stefan, is there anything you want to add particularly about the, the German perspective on it? Well, I think what, what is interesting is that they, they converge the perspectives, mm. uh, that this idea of, of of um, city uh, of Eve as the city of the dead is already is also present in uh, in German um, discourses before 1914. Uncanny uncanny element uh, of unwitting foretelling uh, is also present in uh, German tourist guidebooks. Perhaps they didn't quite have the same obsession uh, with Eve and its medieval past. Maybe because. Uh, Ypres was sort of a gateway uh, for the British towards to the European Middle Ages and, and European uh, medievalism. And German visitors didn't perhaps need the same kind of visual stimulus to think about the European Middle uh, Middle Ages. Also, for it was much easier to access for British tourists. I mean, there were other places to visit for Germans before the First World War as well. Uh, um, you know, Ghent and Antwerp and so on were probably more prominent on the tourist trail. But it's, it's, it's certainly there as a symbol, in particular as a symbol of, of decline, of and this proverbial saying that Eve as a city of the dead is already uh, uh, widely known before the First World War too. So we come on to the on to the conflict. So what happens at Ypres during the Great War? I know that's a massive subject. And we we don't have a great deal of time, but in thirty seconds. Well, in in many ways, uh, I think the fascinating thing about Ypres militarily is exactly the same point that we were making um, about uh, tourism. 
you know, and why it's going to become a place of great post-war commemoration. It's the accident of geography, isn't it? There is this city that sits at the confluence of lots of um, ancient and modern communication links and is the gateway to the coast, to the to the Channel Coast. So for both France and Britain and for Germany, there is this recognition that if you can dominate Ypres, if you can capture it, you effectively open the gateway to the coast. So in the Great War, as we know, defensively in 1914, Britain and France have to hold onto it as they do then again in 1915. In 1917, what they want to do is chuck the German forces a long way back from it because um, as well as protecting their own hinterland, what it would do will be to unravel the Belgian coast which will be brilliant in terms of defeating the, the submarine threat and, and opening up sort of logistics for the Allies. So that accident of geography um, uh, is what makes Ypres so important militarily and it's intimately connected. It strikes me to its pre-war um, sense as a, as a tourist destination and its post-war position as a, um, as a war, you know, uh, as a battlefield tourist destination. It might be worth just zooming in on one moment uh, in in the war, uh, that's the 11th of November 1914, the German army issued a communique that laid on every German knew almost by heart um, that uh, German youngsters uh, would have to memorize. Um, and that communique said, and let me just quote from it, west of Langemark, young regiments broke forward singing Deutschland, Deutschland über alles, against the first line of the enemy's position and took them. Now, almost every single, every word in this statement is wrong. West of Langemark is very vague. Um, the fighting actually, uh, uh, it referring here to a place called Big Shorter, but that doesn't roll off the German tongue uh, in the same way as, as Langemark. Young regiments implied that these regiments were composed of young people, students, um, which wasn't true singing Deutschland, Deutschland über alles uh, wasn't true either. Um, there was some singing, uh, perhaps sometimes in order to identify, uh, um, to, to avoid friendly fire, but there is no evidence to suggest that they uh, stormed forward singing the anthem, and they didn't take the enemy's position either. So um, there's this one this sentence of 15 words and, and uh, almost nothing is correct, but it became the stuff of myth. The whole Western Front story was sort of telescoped into this one moment uh, in November 1914. So what did Ypres become to the, for the combatants who fought over it during the Great War? Well, I think for the for the British and the British Empire, you know, it's back to that 11th of November 1914 moment, which comes so rapidly after the 31st of October 1914. And it's going to encapsulate, um, you know, the whole uh, symbolic significance of it is that Ypres is a place of immense sacrifice. Um, and it's a sacrifice that is made in order to keep the enemy from Britain's doorstep. And I think that's going to be the crucial association with Ypres. You know, if Ypres falls, the heart of the empire um, is in danger. So, yeah, it, it, it takes on the, this... Um, 
immense uh, a symbolic sense of, of being sort of the, the shield of Britain, which is held up by Britain's contemptibly little army in 1914, you know, and then the others that come in its wake take up take up that mantle uh, and step up to it. And that also then allows that idea of it becoming a place of sacrifice, allows it to be embedded in wartime propaganda as um, somewhere where British and Imperial soldiers carry out a quasi-holy duty. And again, the sheer geography of it lends itself. The fact that there is a main road running out of it, you know, towards the enemy lines, means that that can be compared, the Menin Road can be compared with the Via Dolorosa. Um, and it's often referred to as the British Empire's Via Dolorosa. And as John Buchan um, uh, will say, and then becomes common in, in British discourse uh, and imperial discourse, what Verdun is to France, Ypres is to Britain. So it becomes this immensely important site of bloody defiance against an extremely brutal and nasty enemy, proven, of course, in 1915 by the use of gas. And it's never really going to shake off that mantle um, at all. Uh, and, and for the Germans, um, Stefan, what's your... Mm. Is it really encapsulating that 14 moment? Yes, it's particular Langemark stands for the moment when uh, the German expectations um, were, were, were crashed and where the, the war of movement came to a halt. And it wasn't so much military defeat, military defeat, military defeat as uh, being defeated by the elements with the opening of um, uh, the sluices and the flooding of um, the landscape. Um, the myth emer emerged that they were sort of undefeated in, in the field, but tricked by the Belgians who had in a very unsporting fashion uh, flooded the landscapes and thus brought the German advance to a halt. And that's that narrative repeated in the in the cemetery at Langemark. This has got this very peculiar design with the moat surrounding it, which is supposed to be a symbol of the flooded landscape of, of 1914. So it marked the point where, um, and Langemark particularly marked the point where we see this war enthusiasm of summer 1914 extended into the autumn, the singing of the anthem during the advance, um, but also the moment uh, where the high expectations of a military uh, victory had to be buried. And so how do people regard the city after the Great War and what was their sort of relationship with it? Well, I think for the the British, it's certainly, and the British Empire, it, it's to claim the whole place for um, for the British Empire, that this is peculiarly kind of our spot, that's the, the rhetoric, which um, therefore immediately begins to uh, marginalise the French, who had, of course, played it an enormous role, particularly in the first Battle of Ypres. And, and, but that is already kind of being airbrushed from an Anglophone vision of um, the salient, just as the very important French contribution to the third battle is being rather swept under the carpet. And, and, and the fact that the French do rather well in the third battle is also not something that the British are that interested in talking about. So, uh, and, and of course, the, the British have the, the huge advantage of having the boots on the ground in Ypres. I mean, literally having the army there till 1921, and that's gradually morphing into the Imperial War Graves Commission, which gives the British, you know, the springboard and the British Empire to actually, shall we say, sink its claws into the landscape. 
Um, and the fact that uh, the local authorities are relatively compliant and sort of friendly about um, uh, British intentions means that it, it can begin to colonise and own this place. And one of the um, sort of great, uh, uh, shall we say, semantic legacies is that because so many of those local people who had either remained or start to come back, they start to use the old Tommy names for the place as well. They become as conversant in them, you know, as, as, as the soldiers of, of the British armies, um, that that retains a, a kind of uh, semantic hold over it, you know, that no one knows where Harringhard Forest uh, or Wood is, but they, they know where Stirling Castle, are, you know, or, or Dumbarton Woods or Hellfire Corner. So these places get, get um, stamped into it and it's kind of left to the other competents almost to scrap around the edges to see what the British haven't claimed by the end of it. I think, I think that it was also important to notice the, the rhetoric of holy ground. Mm. It is referred to as the, the holy ground of British arms. There are some commentators who suggest that Jerusalem is to the Jews, Ypres is to the British. Um, and this is not just a rhetorical exaggeration. It reflects um, the status uh, the city and the salient had in, uh, in, in the British imagination in the interwar period. That became duly recognized by the Belgians when they conferred on uh, the small British colony that had emerged there, the title, the official title of British settlement. I think that was in 1931. So it became a kind of a kind of quasi-colonial outpost uh, accepted uh, by by the Belgians. Now, the crucial difference uh, was that the the British had very good access to to it. Um, for, for German visitors, it was much more difficult to travel to Ypres because of uh, uh, passport restrictions, uh, the financial situation. And it's only from uh, around 1928 onwards that we see uh, this changing. Uh, in uh, 1928, a, a campaign starts to build a significant war graves uh, a cemetery at Langemark, which becomes a focal point for nationalist sentiment in uh, the late Weimar Republic. Until then, until about the, the, the late 1920s, war graves, the German war graves had to be looked after the Belgians. That was stipulated in the Versailles Treaty. And it was a campaign to use the war graves and the war graves issue to campaign against the Versailles Treaty on the one hand, but also to undermine the legitimacy of the Weimar Republic. Uh, the Weimar politicians uh, couldn't do very much about war graves until the mid-late 1920s, but nationalist firebrands used uh, the dilapidate, dilapidated state of uh, German war graves in the, the early mid-1920s as a, as a propaganda tool against uh, the Weimar Republic to show that they were not caring about uh, the war dead from uh, the First World War. And so when the Weimar, when, when, when the Langmark Cemetery is then built between 1928 and 1932, um, this becomes a focal point for the imagination of a new type of community, of a new type of national community. And it seems to be encapsulated in the design of the Langemark Cemetery, which um, 
uh, doesn't give the that individual grace, but instead uh, puts the emphasis on uh, the community of the dead, not on on the individual sacrifice, but on the sacrifice on of behalf of the nation, commemorated here as a a group of soldiers, as a band of of brothers. So ironically, um, the uh, individual German dead uh, had a greater chance of being commemorated as an individual if he was buried in an Imperial War Graves uh, cemetery than in a German cemetery. We come to the modern day. Now, how is Ypres seen today and how has it been seen over the centenary uh, by the various nations? I think in order to understand the centenary today, we've got to return to the 1970s. Well, that's the point when Germans started uh, to stay away from from Ypres. And uh, since the 1970s, Germans have not felt the same emotional connection to the war dead and particularly to the landscape of Western Flanders that previous generations had. And with the passing away of the veterans generation during the 1970s, the presence of, of German visitors in and around Ypres declined uh, dramatically. Ironically, precisely at the moment when British battlefield tourism was slowly starting to pick up again. So the consequence of this is that, that um, while Langemark has, still has a resonance as an idea uh, and a sort of a political ideology as uh, something that is problematic, um, Eve and, and as a place hasn't really attracted large numbers of, of German uh, visitors. So there is a disconnect here between the, the war and the landscape of war. Now, the centenary has changed that a little bit. There's been a, a greater influx of German tourists, but fundamentally, this deep emotional connection between landscape and the memory of the First World War is something that is very, would be very difficult to re-establish uh, in, in the German case. And my, I suspect that now we're coming into the 1920s, that this this uh, uh, influx of German visitors will decline again. Um, I can't see this as a, as a long-term change in uh, the commemorative trajectory since the 19, 1970s. Um, but I think it, 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 there's also a, you know, a British story of decline after 1945, isn't there, Mark? Yeah, yeah. It, it no longer the unrivaled side of war commemoration that it was in the 1920s. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the the fascinating thing um, uh, about the, the kind of, uh, shall we say, the, the gradual de decline and fall and then resurrection of, of Ypres, I, I mean, by gradual, I mean, after 1945, when you might, as you might well expect, you know, the, the attentions of uh, British people are elsewhere, um, and it creates a whole new set of sites where the bereaved want to visit and, and also for, for battlefield tourism. But I think what's interesting is the way Eep has managed to re-emerge and, and kind of hold its end up, shall we say, against the massive rise of the son of the Somme from the 1960s. 
throughout the 20s and 30s, Ypres is undoubtedly, you know, the central focus, and which is quite interesting given, you know, obviously the, the huge blood commitment that Britain makes through its new armies, which suffer so badly on the Somme, you know, and yet Ypres always um, uh, outpunches that. I think that's partly because Ypres is an imperial battlefield and, you know, in par excellence, Britain is an imperial power in the 20s and 30s. By the 1960s, as we know, all of that has, has kind of gone. The, the, the last knockings of empire are around, but Britain is this great power as, as, as well on the slide, which arguably makes the Somme, and particularly, of course, as we know, the Somme for, for many British people actually means the 1st of July 1916 and not much other than that. It makes the the, the kind it, the Somme fits in with a Kleiner Englander view of the world because it's all British units, you know, apart from um, some Newfoundlanders, a bit of Indian cavalry behind the lines, and of course the, the crucial thing, which is becoming more important from the 1960s, of Ireland, of Northern Ireland. So it, uh, I think the Somme starts to create its own um, iconography from the 60s, which is then encouraged in visitor terms by sheer the sheer practical things like the growth of the roll-on roll-off ferry and the French finally getting around to a motorway network so you can actually visit these places which gave it a real resonance but through the centenary I think uh, Ypres has reasserted itself because it can become a synonym for the whole war largely because of that practicality if you haven't got a lot of time and want to see a battlefield you can do Ypres in a day trip you can get there a coach tour operators can take you there and bring you home in a day you've got a major memorial that sits in the middle of a city where there is a powerful daily ceremony and within seconds of it either you know finishing you can have chips and beer you can't do that you can't do that in Ypres, so you can't do that on the Somme, can you? You know, you can visit the architectural masterpiece of the commission, the Val Memorial, but you're kind of trapped there if you visit it. There's nothing for you to do immediately afterwards. So Ypres has all these kind of practical things, which I think through the centenary has helped to reassert itself um, because of its long tourist infrastructure. You know, it's able to, to swallow numbers. But I think what's very interesting during the course of the centenary, and this is where I'm going to become a bit Ben Elton, you know, bringing a little bit of politics. The fascinating thing that happens with the British, of course, Brexit happening through the course of the centenary and what that means, you know, how much people are thinking through, um, what, what kind of connotation do they impose upon Ypres? It, it, when they're standing there at the last post, you know, are they thinking, wow, you know, this was us showing the Continentals what for, right? We, we showed them in two world wars, didn't we? And are they sort of keeping in the subtleties that that last post is being played by local people as an act of homage, you know, that see Britain as embedded in their culture, embedded in their lives. And also, of course, Ypres, I think these days, um, because of that kind of uh, Commonwealth War Graves Commission dominance, still means that we tend to forget uh, and perhaps have forgotten too much during the course of the centenary that Britain fought the war as part of an alliance, that there were others that were alongside it, particularly the French. And it's very, very interesting to, to see, you know, the numbers of visitors of the um, Commonwealth War Graves cemeteries, but still the depleted numbers, you know, that, that go to things like uh, Saint-Charles-de-Potige, you know, this, this incredible French cemetery, which didn't really... Um, shall we say, find itself resurrected as a result of, of the centenary.
there's also been an attempt to um, turn Eep into a European symbol during the mm. itinerary. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking here of the um, the summit of European leaders um, mm. and uh, then visiting uh, the In Flanders Field Museum and being shown around Eep. So uh, yes, Eep could be turned into a symbol of 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 Brexit and a, a vision of Britain separated from, from the continent. But it can also be turned into the opposite symbol. And, and that's something really the uh, In Flanders Field Museum is, is working on, 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 on stressing the transnational character of, of EAP and as a, as a place for Europeans to come together, reflect on the past and build a, a better future. So that's the kind of project that Eve as a city of peace has set for itself, um, not just during the centenary. This goes back to the post-Second World War period that they started to think of Eve as a place of uh, peace and reconciliation, um, first starting with veterans, uh, others, uh, researchers, ordinary people, trying to uh, uh, bring them together, uh, think about uh, peace rather than uh, war at, at Eve, and, and there the city has a uh, a, a very dedicated peace program as well. And, and, and finally, I think what's been interesting during the centenary is that the much bigger number of you know, former uh, Dominion visitors coming to Ypres. So um, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders. And you know, what, what's perhaps interesting there, if, if the British uh, can at times show a degree of chauvinism and kind of forgetting the, the bigger picture, what you could perhaps argue is what's emerged over the last 10 or so years and has been really solidified by the centenary is a sense in which perhaps people from Canada and Australia think that they can explore this landscape without thinking of themselves as people that were doing it under a Britannic umbrella. You know, their forefathers were very definitely living on, in a Britannic world, a greater Britain, and that's the way they conceived of themselves. So it's been fascinating in the centenary, shall we say, to watch the, the, the kind of splinters uh, uh, um, uh, jump out here and then to impose even more strongly their own narratives on it and not look at the broader history of the place. Yeah, I mean, you can see, sorry, just to add to what I was saying, uh, how, how they're also trying to, to claim particular spots uh, within uh, the salient. Um, I'm just uh, thinking of the new uh, visitor centre at, at Pluckstert. So the kind of micro-geographies that uh, governed um, commemorations uh, in the 1920s seem to make a reappearance mm. with particular parts of the former empire now identifying with particular spots within this uh, salient. Um, this is coming back during the, the centenary years, hasn't it, Mark? Mm, absolutely, yeah. And how has this relationship between us, the Belgians and others, over what EEP means to each and every one of us, how's that actually worked out and does it cause conflict at all? Uh, it's a fascinating thing, isn't it, that goes right the way back to the earliest days of visiting. You know, this fake distinction between the pilgrim and the tourist, uh, which is entirely fake, because as we all know, we, we leap between the two persona ourselves, don't we? You know, the most dedicated of, of sort of First World War students that knows every inch of the battleground, who might think of themselves as exceptionally different to, to the day tripper, at some point is going to 
buy a packet of chips or buy a, an unfeasibly large bar of chocolate in Ypres for their friends, you know, or or drink Belgian's liquid heritage. So we're always, you know, jumping between the persona of of the the, the sort of pilgrim or the the uh, serious student of history and that of the tourist. We we dip our hands in our pockets. We indulge in the the tourist infrastructure. And I think for the flip side, that's the way it is for the local community. You know, on one and the same one at the same time, they are the people who make a, a lot of money out of this. It's absolutely vital to the local economy. Um, and they do a lot of, uh, shall we say, shrewd infrastructure work to make sure that um, that tourist footfall will continue. Um, they also, it strikes me, are remarkably, particularly the farming community, you know, remarkably tolerant of um, great British tour buses blocking up country lanes when you might want to get a big piece of agricultural kit down it. But at the same token, by the same token, those people are immensely invested in the spiritual and symbolic significance of the place, as is shown every night in that that last post ceremony you know you might say well not every um member of the city comes out every night to celebrate it but i would argue that the sheer fact that they shall we say at the very least tolerate it and allow a massive disruption of their daily lives and the way they can drive their cars in and out of their own city you know or, or get through it every single day of the year shows that there is this kind of symbiotic relationship between uh, uh, the, the legacy of the great war um commemorating it you know that there is a, a sort of remarkably um tolerant and shall we say well-balanced set of relationships that, that has emerged um uh, over the decades there's no doubt that tourism and commemorations are also part of a vital part of the local industry um, in Ypres. Um, the whole town relies on on this income stream from from visitors, and there's the occasional danger of trivialization. Um, we saw this a couple of years ago when a local butcher came up with the idea of launching a new type of pâté, which he wanted to call the, the In Flanders Field Pâté. And it was Passchendaele as well, wasn't it? A Passchendaele Pâté, who wasn't I, it? I, yeah. I guess <laughs> and, and more recently, there was the, the Iper Eat uh, restaurant, um, written like Iper Eat, but, but that um, uh, sounds a bit like Iper Eat, which is the French word for, um, for uh, poison gas uh, coined in uh, the First World War. So sometimes these there can be some sort of tasteless uh, outbursts of this commercial activity, but there's, there's obviously corrective uh, coming from within the Belgian community, in this case, the In Flanders Fields Museum, that try to, um, uh, 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 to explain to uh, the butcher or the restaurant uh, what they can and what they can't do or what they should and shouldn't do. So while there has been tensions over the over the decades between uh, tourists and pilgrims and, and locals, um, I think overall it's a symbiotic relationship. They rely on each other, and as, as Mark said, they, they, uh, the um, uh, the last post was after all a local initiative, a initiative, a local initiative to commemorate the British dead, and and the fact that they resumed this ritual as soon as the Germans had 
uh, left the city again in the Second World War tells you that this is a, a genuine ritual. This isn't just put on for for tourists and visitors. Um, but there was a deep, deep felt need um, on part of the local population to commemorate uh, the sacrifice of um, uh, the British and, and their allies. And I suppose a slightly speculative question for my penultimate one is what does what will Eats mean in the future once we're we're past the centenary and and maybe focus has moved to the Second World War? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I think a crucial thing will be, I, I mean, in in terms of maintaining some kind of idea of what Eats is, is the, the sheer practical one of uh, will British. Um, the British national curriculum maintain the First World War uh, as a core part of it and therefore will it be still bringing groups of young British people into the city you know and then the impression that it will create and the legacy that it creates on them so as I think that that one is extremely important I think there's also though a sense perhaps of the way the wider, shall we say, political cultural drift um, of somewhere like Britain goes. If there is, if we're still going to encourage um, an idea that uh, Britain was perhaps at its best, shall we say, in two world wars and make that a keystone of our culture, I can't see why uh, Ypres should decline too much as a, as a place that, that people visit. But perhaps um, with Brexit, perhaps the idea of British exceptionalism and that the wider context will continue to be forgotten. And the interesting thing, though, the, the very, very interesting thing might well be, uh, particularly if international travel, you know, does come back to sort of pre-coronavirus levels is will people like the Australians and Canadians be um, you know increasing in their numbers of visiting and increasing their alternative uh, narratives uh, on the place uh, and you know will we actually see that as the big kind of growth area um, and um, also of course the the other player that might well become more involved uh, say if we go to anything like the pre-coronavirus um, uh, drift of the world is the new player on the Ypres block in some ways in the uh, centenary was China um, and, and the, the association of the Chinese Labour Corps with the city and the way the Chinese lay, uh, the Chinese government was trying to sort of piggyback on the, the back of the history of the Chinese Labour Corps to say something about China as world power, as at the heart of world events um, and actually you know, on the ground in Europe. So they, I think, are some of the, the sort of interesting trajectories that, that might go on into the future. Also suit the agenda of the in Flanders Fields Museum, which is sort of perhaps well, the most important local player here, mm. um, because their agenda is very transnational, international. Mm. Um, they're very prominent in foregrounding the, 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 the Chinese uh, presence mm. uh, in, through their exhibition works and catalogues. So perhaps here yeah, the global developments um, match very neatly with uh, the intentions of the In Flanders Fields Museum to stress that this is a, a local place, but it's also a, a genuinely international global place where the First World War as a global war um, can be uh, 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 commemorated and researched. I suppose a, a second um, prediction for the future uh, would be that this 
um, synthesis of, of popular history and academic history can continue. Um, as, pra as practiced by the uh, in Flanders Fields Museum, um, uh, they um, they have an exhibition that is very popular, very appealing, but at the same time deeply researched. And this coming together of of academic researchers, um, uh, uh, battlefield tourists, um, and others uh, that is encouraged by the the museum through the exhibitions and conferences. Maybe that's something that can continue in the future and 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 help us to overcome this division between academic and, and popular history. Yes, yeah, and, and sorry, what I should have added as well, just to, to sort of skip back a second, is during the centenary, we had the very, I suppose, the first signs of a little bit more, shall we say, of a renaissance in interest in the Great War um, in, in South Asia, but particularly in India. Um, you know, and if the Indian economy and India's global role continues on the trajectory that it was on, yeah, it'd be fascinating with, uh, within the next sort of 10, 20 years to see, will there be more Indian visitors who can very easily do that access between, again, thanks to the accidents of geography, between Neuf Chapelle and Ypres, where, where there has a relatively new Indian memorial, you know, and what might an Indian narrative about Ypres be? And finally, gentlemen, where can people learn more about your book and your research? <laughs> all right. Yeah, well, the, the book, I'm glad to say, is available from all um, uh, good outlets, Amazon and, and everything else. Um, uh, yep. So very easy to get hold of. And remarkably, we'd like to think, you know, I'm sure a lot of uh, the listeners will know things that are produced by university presses can sometimes require you to sell a kidney and your firstborn. And then you can afford about two chapters worth of it. Uh, we're, we're very pleased that it was um, uh, priced uh, reasonably. I think sort of 20 pounds or something so that, that's that's great um and as for uh, my work you know i'm involved as i'm sure a lot of the western front uh, member association members know with uh, the gateway center and we've got our website and my um university uh, webpage has got a lot of information and if anyone's got any queries any questions really happy to have a chat you know do look me up via the university of kent and uh, drop me a line yes and in fact uh, the book is 15 pounds oh there we go hard copy uh, a real bargain uh, you can also, you can also actually read quite a, a substantial chunk of it online uh, via amazon for free um uh maybe you can also mention uh, our uh, blog um, munitions of the mind um to uh, learn more about research we do at the university of kent and uh, our phd students in particular so check out Munitions of the Mind as well. And Stefan and I also helped to uh, co-host um, and convene a seminar at the Institute of Historical Research at Senate House in London on war, society and culture. We normally meet once a month on a, on a uh, Wednesday. Obviously, there's a hiatus at the moment, but those are open to anybody to come along. So please do look at the website of the School of Advanced Studies at the University of London. And if anybody sees any titles there, you know, any papers given and would like to, to come along, uh, we'd be delighted to see them gentlemen thank you very much for your time thank you Tom thanks a lot thank you you have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me Tom Thorpe 
Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>